Well, good morning. Happy Sunday to everybody. Who here likes to read books? And who likes to watch movies? I figured between those two, you catch pretty much everybody. Um, there, are, there are a lot of wonderful, obscure, mysterious characters in books and, and in movies. Do you have any favorites? Do you have any favorite of those mysterious, obscure kinds of uh, characters? Ones that you really love to think, you find yourself thinking about after you've read or after you've watched. Maybe you enjoy characters that are very powerful, uh, but, but maybe a little bit dangerous. They might be good, um, but you don't know exactly why they do what they do. They act for reasons that only they can understand. Maybe somebody like Aslan from the Chronicles of Narnia, who's frightening yet good. Or maybe, maybe you prefer characters like someone who at first appears to be evil and menacing, but then in the end turns out to be a lot more complex than that, and, and even good. Someone like Severus Snape from the Harry Potter series. Or when you think of weird, obscure, bizarre characters, maybe just somebody who's just sort of crazy, like Willy Wonka comes to mind. Or um, there's, there's any number of these. There's, there's films and, and books are full of these. Jason Bourne, The Count of Monte Cristo, Boba Fett, We love mysterious characters like these because they capture our imaginations in ways that no one else can. And we feel compelled to try to discover the answers to the mysteries that these characters present. Who are they? Where do they come from? What's motivating them? Why are they doing what they're doing? And it it kind of pulls us into the story when we encounter somebody like that. In the Bible, there's a lot of strange, obscure, and enigmatic characters too. People uh, who've captured the imaginations of readers for for centuries and centuries, people like Eglon, king of Moab, Og, king of the giants, the witch of Endor, Simon the magician, the Nephilim, or even Balaam, who is best known for his chats with donkeys. Here in Hebrews 7, we've got kind of an extended passage today, we have an extended discussion of one of the most obscure figures in the whole Bible, a mysterious man named Melchizedek. The author of Hebrews has already mentioned him briefly in passing in chapters 5 and 6. So as he's been writing, he's got this Melchizedek guy on his mind. But now in chapter 7, he zeroes in on Melchizedek for the entire chapter. So we'll read from in your bulletins chapter 7. We've cut it a little bit shorter because there's 28 verses. uh, And just for space and time, we cut it a little bit short. But this is what Hebrews 7 says about Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek. King of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned the tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, a king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, the king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, Melchizedek, who does not have his his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises." It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. 
And in the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives, present tense. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes to Melchizedek through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, not from Levi. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about their being priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, for his, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. The word of God from Hebrews chapter 7. Here's what makes the author's focus on Melchizedek so strange. Did you know that outside of this chapter, well I should say outside of the book of Hebrews, Melchizedek is mentioned only twice in the entire Bible. Twice. And it's for a grand total of four verses that are spent on him in the entire well just in, he's mentioned him in chapter 5 and chapter 6 and just in chapter 7 he devotes 28 verses to describing Melchizedek for somebody who the, the whole previous part of the Bible has described twice for four verses the first time that the Bible mentions Melchizedek is an obscure story in Genesis chapter 14 in Genesis chapter 14 Abraham had just won a great military victory and the kings that lived near Abraham were all sending gifts to celebrate the victory. And this is what it says in Genesis 14, verses 18 to 20. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, for he was priest of God, he was priest of God Most High. And he blessed them and said, Blessed by Abram, by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. So blessed be Abram, and blessed be God. And that's it. That's the whole story. It's three verses long. The whole encounter is basically an obscure king that you've never heard of before, setting out a feast of bread and wine 
blessing God and blessing Abraham. That's the whole thing. The only other time in the entire Bible that Melchizedek is even mentioned is one verse in Psalm 110. And this is how Psalm 110 begins. A Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of the youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and he will, he is not, he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's it. That's the whole Old Testament description of this guy. One mention in Psalm 110, and then after that, Melchizedek is never mentioned in the Bible again until the book of Hebrews, written a thousand years later, offers this extended description of the, of the man and his importance. So back to Hebrews 7. Look at verses 1 through 3. It's interesting to me, in verses 1 through 3, that the writer summarizes the story of Melchizedek from Genesis 14 just to make sure the reader knows it. I find it very interesting that he feels the need to summarize the story for them. Even though his readers are Jewish and have grown up around the scriptures, he can't be sure, he can't assume that they already know this story. So he kind of recaps it for them very quickly. It's interesting, the whole story in Genesis is three verses, and he spends three verses recapping it in Hebrews chapter 7. Notice in verse 2 that he even translates the names for his readers. Melchizedek means king of righteousness. We translate that king of righteousness in English, but intriguingly, the same word can mean he can be the king of justice in Hebrew. Melech Zedek, the king of righteousness, the king of justice, is what his name means. And he rules over a place called Salem, which literally means peace. So Melchizedek is this king who brings righteousness, justice, and peace together under one rule. That's at least symbolically what's going on here. But it's interesting to me that if the author hadn't explained that, it would have gotten lost in translation. Because even though he's writing to Jewish people, at this point in time, very few of them could speak or read Hebrew. The common language of the Roman Empire was Greek. And the common language of the region of Judea was Aramaic. And so, without translation, the readers might have missed what those words actually meant. What Melchizedek, king of Salem, what are the implications of that? So I think it's striking that even though the author of Hebrews is writing to his fellow Jews, he can't assume that they understand even their own language or that they've heard all the stories before, including the story of Melchizedek. After centuries of exile, return, continued, repeated colonization, so much of their culture had been lost. So I think it's noteworthy that he starts this description with a summary and a translation. And if you, if you had been a first century Jewish reader of this letter, you might, have, you might have recognized Melchizedek's name. You might have heard the story in the synagogue at some point. But even if you had... Melchizedek wouldn't have seemed like a, an important character to you. He's a guy mentioned twice in passing, four verses total. How could someone so obscure be considered so important to the story? 
Well, that's exactly why the writer, to the, he- writer the author of Hebrews, spends so much time on this. That's exactly why he spends 28 verses here in Hebrews 7. Because he's trying to persuade his reader that, yes, this strange person that Abraham once met in passing is, in fact, much more important than you think he is. So after, after verse 3, the rest of Hebrews 7, if you look at verses 4 through 28, uh, the rest of Hebrews 7 seems to really zero. He, he recaps Genesis 14, and then the rest of it seems to really zero in on Psalm 110, that one verse. The Lord has taken an oath. You, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We skip some verses, as I mentioned, in the bulletin for the sake of space. But one writer describes this latter part of Hebrews chapter 7 as a, uh, he described it as an extended commentary on Psalm 110. It quotes from the psalm several times, and it ties it to a description of the Old Testament priesthood that maybe seems uh, like mostly technical details to us. You know, we, we don't live in a priestly culture. This is for, kind of a foreign world to us. And as we read these descriptions of sacrifices and tithings and you know, all of the details of the chapter, maybe it seems like technical details. But I thought this was great. I recently read someone who said, this is a great quote, as any mechanic will tell you, unless someone pays attention to the technical details, you won't be able to drive the car down the road. So the details are in there for a reason. Glance, just glance through, take a second to glance through verses 1 through 10 again. And just kind of pick up the gist of how Melchizedek is described. Who he is and what he does. Think in those two categories. Notice who he is. He's the king of righteousness, justice, and peace. He has neither beginning of days nor end of life. He, has, uh, he is continuing as a priest forever, according to Hebrews 7. Notice what he does. Notice his actions. He receives tithes. He presents Abraham with a, a feast of bread and wine. And at that feast, he pronounces a blessing over Abraham in the name of God. If you've been around Christianity much, you probably hear something familiar in those descriptions of Melchizedek, who he is and what he does. If you hear reminders of Jesus in those descriptions, you certainly aren't alone in that. I mean, the writer to the Hebrews here at the, uh, right at the end of the chapter, he, verses 14 and following, he really dials in on the identifying Jesus as the fulfillment of this. But even more than that, since the earliest days of the church, Christians have wondered whether Melchizedek might be something called a theophany. That is, an appearance of God in the flesh. In the Old Testament, before Jesus came, before Jesus was born, did God appear at different times physically in the flesh? I think we have to say, yeah, at least sometimes he did. Do you remember when Jacob wrestled with God? Jacob wasn't tumbling with an ethereal spirit. It wasn't a ghostly mist that left him limping the rest of his life. It was God, quite painfully and literally, in the flesh. Or what about Moses when he sees the burning bush or later sees God himself, but only from behind? Those aren't just visions. They were tangible things that happened to Moses. 
or the angel of the Lord who makes appearances throughout the Old Testament from Joshua to Sennacherib. And if you read the descriptions of the angel of the Lord and what he's like and what he does, it sound, you suddenly learn that this is something more than just a created creature that's here to inspire people. This is a visiting from God himself. So as these things have often been understood to be appearances of God in physical form before the coming of Jesus, since the earliest days of the church, some have believed that Melchizedek is a, is a theophany. Maybe a coming of the Son of God himself to reveal himself and to save, to intervene God, God's people in, in that particular moment. Others have said, no, Melchizedek was just a man, but he's one of many people that God used in special ways in the Old Testament era to prepare for the Savior to come. And that debate continues today. Was Melchizedek a theophany, or was he just a man? Well, there's a ton more that could be said about Melchizedek. There's a, there's a ton of documents, there's a ton of, of stuff written about him from the earliest, actually before the earliest days of the church. Some of the most interesting ideas about Melchizedek come from pre-Christian Jewish writings on who was this guy. There's a lot out there, and it's really fascinating. But let's turn our, let's turn our attention to this question. What should we be learning from Hebrews chapter 7? What should we be learning from this mysterious royal priest? I think we should learn at least three things from Hebrews chapter 7. Here's the first one. Love what is permanent. Do you remember Jesus' story about the two construction workers? It's in Matthew chapter 7. Jesus told a story about two construction workers. One who built on a solid foundation and another who built on a weak one. Sand versus stone. Do you remember that story? The entire point of Hebrews chapter 7 is very similar to that story. The entire reason, the entire reason that the writer to the Hebrews even brings up Melchizedek is to prove to his Jewish readers that there is a greater priesthood. There is a greater priesthood. We know the priesthood of Melchizedek is greater than the Levite priesthood of Israel, Hebrews argues, just one of the arguments he makes, because of the tithes that Abraham paid to Melchizedek. If one priest, Levi, who the text says, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor. If Levi is paying tribute to Melchizedek, then Melchizedek must be the greater priest. That's how it works. And the writer of the Hebrews writer of Hebrews is using the story of Melchizedek to persuade his readers, you should have known that the priesthood of Levi was temporary and would fade away, that it would go away. You should have known that because of what you read about Melchizedek. You should have been looking for a greater priesthood, one greater than Levi, one greater than Aaron, all along. That's the argument he's making. He is hammering that point home throughout this entire chapter to his first century Jewish readers. There's a greater priesthood. Why would you consider turning around and going back to the old one? A weaker, temporary priesthood. Why would you do that when there's a better, eternal priesthood? That's the case he's making. Now, the temptation to return to a Levitical priesthood might not be as big a problem for you 
as it was for the first readers of this letter. But all of us, all of us, struggle to love what is permanent and not what is temporary. All of us are tempted to build our houses on sand instead of on rock. Why do we pour ourselves out for temporary things? How much time, energy, and money have we spent following, chasing, desiring, building temporary things? Hebrews Hebrews is telling us we need to repent of that. And we need to turn away, and we need to love what is permanent. So what are the permanent things? What do we have that's eternal? What should we be loving? Here are just a few things that are eternal that will outlast this fading, fleeting world. Human souls, the church, the kingdom of Christ. Hebrews 7 is telling us to love what is permanent. We need to grow in our concern for the health of souls. How concerned are you about the health of souls, the souls of others and our own souls? We need to care deeply about the growth and the purity of the church. Not just here in Boise, but around the world. And also here in Boise. We need, to be, we need to grow in our concern. We need to care deeply about the growth and the purity of the church. And our greatest desire, our greatest desire should be for the righteousness, justice, and peace of the kingdom of Christ to come here on earth. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your righteousness, your justice, your peace. Lord, I want to see that here and now. Please come. What are the things that distract us from thinking about, talking about, and investing in the permanent things? What are the temporary things that block us from loving what is permanent? Love what is permanent. That's the first. The first thing we should learn from Hebrews 7. Here's the second thing. There's only one perfect king. One. I like to visit the Idaho Capitol building every so often. I get over there several times a year just to check it out, maybe meet some people there. But I love to look at the photos of the various governors and other state leaders over the years. The photos go back decades, and the governor's photos go all the way back to when Idaho became a state in 1890. Imagine if I visited the Capitol one day and looked at the photos of the governors. And then I noticed for the first time, they're all the same person. What if I just realized that Idaho had the same governor for all 127 years of its history? If I saw that on the board outside the governor's office, my first thought would probably be, well, that's pretty weird, because people don't live long enough to be governor for 127 years. But suppose it was true. Suppose Idaho had only ever had one governor. I guess if it was true, my second thought would be, he must be pretty good at his job. I mean, the citizens must like him an awful lot if they kept him in office for 127 years. We all, learn, we all yearn for stability. We wish our lives were more stable. I recently read an article on the effects of instability on children. It quickly becomes a multi-generational problem when, in which parents pass on their insecurities, their hurt, their coping mechanisms 
to their children. We all yearn for a steady hand that leads to lasting righteousness, justice, and peace. We were created for it. Our souls, and even the world itself, groans for someone who can guide us all back to what we were made to be. And Jesus is that perfect ruler. He's the king after the order of Melchizedek. It's laughable when anybody else says, Behold, I make all things new. Don't believe them. Only Jesus can do that. Only he can say that. Jesus is the permanent king, and only he can provide the righteousness, justice, and peace that we all crave. No one else can both demand our full obedience and say, follow, follow me. Take up your cross and follow me. And yet, say to us at the same time, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. No one else can hold those two things in beautiful tension except him. Jesus is the one permanent king, the ruler after the order of Melchizedek, and yet Jesus remains the most polarizing person of all time. People either love him or they hate him. No one just shrugs, at least not when they actually read the claims that he made about himself. Not when they actually read what he said. You can't just shrug. So the question for all of us is, how does your heart react to the thought that Jesus is the one perfect king? Does that fill you with joy? Does it fill you with fear? Does it fill you with anger? Are you willing to follow him, or would you rather spend your life trying to undermine his kingdom? That's the question. That's number two, is that there is only one perfect king. Number, th- number three... The third thing we should learn from Hebrews chapter 7 is that there's only one perfect priest. Melchizedek had two titles, two roles. He was a king and he was a priest. But following David in Psalm 110, Hebrews 7 focuses nearly all of its energy on the priesthood of Melchizedek and of Jesus. Jesus was a priest after the order of Melchizedek. What does a priest do? What is a priest there for? What's their role? What's their job? As an aside, I will encourage you to join us for Will Sprague's adult Christian formation class, which starts next Sunday at 10 a.m. Among other things, he will be answering that very question. What does a priest do? The short version of the answer, short answer to the question is, in the Old Testament, the priests did a bunch of things related to worship. The book of Leviticus is full of, a descri- of descriptions of things that priests did. But at its core... He whittled it all down. All the things that a priest did were centered around one activity. The priest has one main job. And the priest's main job is to speak. To talk. And more specifically, a priest is supposed to speak to God on behalf of the people. That's the role of the priest. Everything the priest does is centered around that idea of speaking to God on behalf of the people. They spoke to God through both their words and their deeds, through their prayers and through their work, including the many sacrifices of the temple. So if we think of Jesus as a priest, the question becomes, when do we see Jesus' priestly work most clearly? 
In John 17, we read what has become known as Jesus' high priestly prayer. In it, he speaks to the Father on behalf of his people. And then after offering priestly speech, he then goes and offers the greatest sacrifice of all time, which is himself. And so in the, in the, the Garden of Gethsemane and then the hill of Golgotha, Jesus takes those places and turns them into uh, a new temple where a new offering of speech and sacrifice is offered. And he, he becomes the, the greatest priest of all time. Or as Hebrews 7 puts it, beginning at verse 26, there at the end of the passage in your bulletin, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like the former high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of his people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. So here's the question for you. If Jesus is the only one true priest, the only one eternal priest, here's the question for you. Who would you rather have to speak to God for you? Someone whose voice is imperfect, inconsistent, and temporary? Or would you rather have speaking to God on your behalf the one who spoke the universe into existence? And the one whose voice raises the dead. His creation and resurrection, that's what happens when Jesus speaks. When Jesus speaks, worlds come into existence and death comes out of life. Can you believe that that's the priest that we get? I mean, that's, that's amazing. I mean, you can't, you can't upgrade from that. I mean, the one who spoke stars into existence is speaking to the Father right now for you. The one who is able to bring life from death is on your side. And he is speaking to the Father right now for you. That's amazing. Jesus is the one perfect priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And yet so often we insist on speaking for ourselves. Contrast for a moment some of the things that Jesus said to the Father in his high priestly prayer in John 17 with some of the things that we often say about ourselves. Jesus said, You have given me authority over all things. We believe instead that our own ideas and decisions have priority over everything else in our lives. Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they know me. We reply, I want immortality, but it has to be on my own way, on my own terms. And I'm not very interested in knowing you. Jesus prayed that his people would be unified but to us, autonomy seems far more important than unity. Jesus said, I have given them the words that you gave me. And we hear Jesus' words and we ask ourselves, has God really said? There's only one perfect priest and it isn't any of us. 
with, what, with such a wonderful priest speaking for us, fighting for us, with the most powerful words in the universe. Only a fool would insist on continuing to speak for himself. Don't do that. Ask the eternal priest to speak for you and to offer the greatest sacrifice himself on your behalf. The priesthood priesthood of Jesus is, as Hebrews 7 describes it, a much better hope through which we draw near to God. And his speech will result in the renewal of all things, including us. Listen to him. Amen.